0: So we are here, the the last uh, sermon in this series, Redevoted, this this series that we have been walking through during the season of Lent, walking alongside uh, some of the churches, that the messages that Jesus spoke to these churches in the book of Revelation, churches that are in today modern day Turkey. And if you remember uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about his message to the church in Ephesus, We talked about the works that they had done, but they had left their first love. And Jesus said, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and return and do the good things that you did in the beginning. And then after that, we listened to Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna, this small church um, that was really persecuted, that was struggling. And it sounded like they were really struggling because they said, Jesus said, you think that you're poor, but actually the reality is you are rich. And then last week we listened to Jesus' message to the church in Thyatira. As he spoke to the Christians there, he said, I know the good things you're doing, your love and your faithfulness, your service and your perseverance, but you're compromising. You're tolerating um, you're tolerating wrong teaching. You're tolerating heresy in your church. And things are falling apart. Things are not as they seem. And this morning we come to Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea. I have to tell you, I've been waiting for this message to preach this text for quite a while. On the one hand, I think Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea, I hear Jesus speaking the same message to the church in North America very generally. But even as I'm waiting to hear and to to study this word, I also feel pretty convicted by it. Pretty convicted by Jesus' words. So over this last week as I've been studying and listening, Been wondering, you know, Lord, am I, am I putting my comfort above you, Jesus? My stuff, and my comfortable life, and everything works the way that I think it should. Am I putting that above you, Lord Jesus? Am I being generous enough? Am I giving away enough? Is enough even the right question to be asking? This whole week I've been wondering is the have I traded the cross, have I stopped picking up my cross so that I can sit on a nice, comfy couch? It's been challenging for me. I wonder is has my wealth <clears throat> and I maybe some of you are thinking, like, well, Jason, you're just a pastor. I mean, how wealthy are you? Uh statistically, every one of us in the room are in the richest five percent of the people in the world. That means ninety five percent of the rest of the world is poorer than us. So we're wealthy. Has my wealth and my comfort, has that dulled my sense of urgency for God's mission? Has that wealth uh, dulled my sense of of relying on God for things? Has my wealth uh, made it harder for me to be compassionate and to show mercy and to care about God's justice? Has my wealth undermined my witness to people around me because I look just like them? These are questions I've been wrestling with this week as my wealth made me lukewarm. So I wonder what you hear um, as you have read uh, Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea. I wonder if you have the same questions, if you feel convicted. I wonder if you feel, well, how do I respond? Like, tell me and I'll do it. I wonder if you feel maybe similar to me, like, boy, maybe I should be more generous or "How how much more generous should I be? I wonder what you hear as you hear these words, uh, this message that Jesus has for the church in Laodicea. So let us read it together. Let us, if you would turn your Bibles to Revelation 3, uh, chapter 14. It's also this white sheet in your bulletin. <clears throat> let us read together. But before we do, let's pray that we would hear God's word, that we would ask for his Holy Spirit to help us. Uh, Father in heaven, we pray for your help as we open your word and begin reading it. We pray for your help, Holy Spirit, to to hear it, uh, not just to read the words, but to actually hear it, Lord. We pray that you would speak to us through this. We pray this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And a salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these last few weeks, we've, I'm convinced that one of the ways, the best ways to hear, uh, what God is saying is to understand some of the background that's happening in these cities that these churches, uh, where these churches are at. In Laodicea, Laodicea was, uh, an important city in its region. It was along an east-west trade route, um, so out of East Asia on, well, in our world, Asia usually means China and those places. But actually, in, in the Roman Empire, Asia was like out of out of Syria and through Turkey, out of Asia, Asia Minor, and they would travel through uh, Laodicea to Ephesus. But it was also on a north-south postal route, uh, so like the letter to uh, Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum, these were all cities that were north of Laodicea. So it's on this kind of this crossroads of trade and and finance. And actually, it was the financial center of its region. It had big banks, lots of money. <clears throat> One example I was reading of was that in 60 AD, there was an earthquake that leveled the city. And the others, there were some other cities around that were also leveled by this earthquake. And many of them appealed to Rome for help, for financial support to start building their city again. And when Rome came to the leaders of Laodicea, they said, thank you, but no thank you. We will build it ourselves. We are rich, and we have need of nothing. As so they did, they built their city again, arguably better than it was before. It was that wealthy of a city. But there's also more to the industry of Laodicea. It was famous for its, it's called it Raven's Black Wool. Um, they believed that it was something in the water that the sheep drank, but it made their wool dark black. And so they were famous for it. And, and as I was reading some commentators on it, they kind of had this, this sort of height of fashion. They were the fashion center of their region as well. Clothes were a big deal. Not only that, but also, too, because of the hot springs that were nearby in the city Hierapolis, uh, which is about uh, 10 miles uh, north of them, um, that was famous for some of the, the salves and ointments that they made, things that they made for eyes, for other ailments. And so they were famous for an eye salve as well. So this is the city of Laodicea, and it's they've been doing really well. They're a wealthy city. People are doing great there, at least financially. Not only that, but they had, Laodicea had trouble with water. If you look on a map, Laodicea was on a bit of a plateau. And so, they didn't have any fresh water sources. So they had to use an aqueduct, uh, and, and stone piping to get it from, uh, probably Hierapolis, which is the city to the north. The thing is, Hierapolis was, um, famous for its hot springs. It had hot spring water. And so, the water would travel down to, uh, Laodicea. And, the difficulty is, because it was hot spring water, by the time I got to Laodicea, to it, it hadn't cooled. So it was lukewarm, probably. Um, and the trouble, too, is hot springs, I don't know if anybody's driven up to, uh, driven by Ainsworth. And right below the hotel, you'll see the water coming down the side of the hill. And it's like this brown, like, sculpture almost. Uh, the mineral deposits from the water over the years that has been flowing, it deposits minerals. And so that's that brown cascade that's basically rock. And so the same thing would happen, and it happens in many um, hot springs. A few years ago, Tracy and I went to one on our way home from the pastor spouse retreat with with Chris and Laura Weens, the former pastor or youth pastor in Nelson. And it was great. It was wonderful. It felt good, but it stunk like rotten eggs because of the sulfur. And uh, so that's pretty common with hot springs. And And there's there was some sediment too in the hot springs. So they've done archaeologists have done some work there that even in the water in Laodicea that it probably tasted horrible. It was lukewarm and it tasted horrible. And so it's no wonder that Jesus says, um, "I'm about to spit you out of my mouth." I wonder if um, actually I think he's speaking about referencing the water too, like a kind of a play on words there. Um, And it's pretty subtle because in 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 the NIV, you get the very Christian version. (laughs) I'm about to spit you out. In Greek, it says I'm about to puke you out of my mouth. I'm about to throw. About to vomit you out of my mouth. Um, It gets at how the water was there. And like I said, the 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 important part is that Laodicea is in the middle, and it has this lukewarm water. You have Hierapolis to the north, and they have hot springs that are soothing. People would come, who would travel through there, and they would go and they'd sit in hot springs. Many of us have done that. It feels great. Um, It's soothing. Uh, many people think it's therapeutic to sit in hot springs. And then also there was another city too, that uh, which was about uh, 16 miles to the east, and it had fresh, cool water. Uh, that The people, when they were traveling, they would come and they would they would get a drink there because it was cool, ice-cold water. But you have Laodicea right in the middle with nothing but lukewarm uh, hot spring water that didn't taste very good. So that's the water situation in Laodicea. But there's also, we have to talk some about the religious setting too. And uh, in Laodicea, Zeus was the main god, or at least the main Greek god, but they also had uh, their own kind of local gods. One of them was Man-Karu, um, like a god of creation. But as I'm reading uh, Laodicea, at least what Jesus says, I don't think the issue is so much uh, the foreign gods there, but was the idol of money of um, how well the city was doing, how prosperous the city had become. Jesus doesn't talk about um, other gods or anything in his letter to the Laodiceans. He doesn't talk about their idol worship or anything. He just talks about uh, the problem with their view of their wealth. And so I think that's probably the main issue in Laodicea is not so much the other gods that were a temptation, but the idol of money and wealth. So it's into this city into the situation that Jesus speaks. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says that he comes to this church and he says the one write this to the to the angel in Laodicea that the the amen the the um the the witness who is faithful and true the ark or the ruler over creation. Sorry. <coughs> Something stuck in my throat. Um but I don't think it's, water's going to help. Thank you, though. <clears throat> Thanks, Trace. You're so faithful. <laughs> Great, thank you. Um But, so, Jesus says, I am the, the Amen, which, you know, for us in modern-day English is maybe a little confusing because, you know, usually for us, amy, Amen means uh, something we put at the end of a prayer to signal that we're done. Uh So, Lord, please help, please... um We work in our lives, and then at the end we say, Amen. And I don't know if many of us realize that Amen doesn't translate, I'm done now. Amen translates as, let it be true. Let it be so. And so when we say that, we're actually not just saying, okay, I'm done. We're saying, Lord, these things that I've prayed, let them be true. Let them come to pass. So it has this connotation of of truth. But also, being a God of the Amen um, is actually a quote from Isaiah. From Isaiah uh, 65 verse 16. Let me let me just read it to you. <coughs> so this is from Isaiah 65:16. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God, and this says true God, but in Hebrew it's Elohe Amen, which is God of Amen, the, the the Amen God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, now this is the part I want—the part I want us to hear. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. <clears throat> So, as many of you, uh, many of you may know, the the book of Revelation, the idea of a new heavens and a new earth are central to it. And they're meant to encourage a people who are being persecuted. Now, Laodicea, I think, is a little bit different. I think maybe they're fitting in too much to their, to the world around them, to their culture, to their city. But it's still important for them to hear that Jesus is the Amen God, the God who is creating a new heavens and a new earth. But not only that, but it also gives them an understanding of who Jesus is. To be, to talk to him, talk about or describe himself as the Amen God is to describe himself as the true God or the God who's true. So it speaks some about his character, that we can trust Jesus, that he is true, that he is trustworthy. But not only that, but he's also using the name of God, describing himself. And many of us, we kind of already get that. We learned that in Sunday school that Jesus is God. But in the ancient world, that was a scandalous thing to say say that Jesus is God. And it changes what, what the way that we live. I mean, I know we've all accept that usually or mostly, and 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 we kind of live that way, but it's big to hear that Jesus, he is the Son of God, that he is God the Son. It's important for us. But Jesus says more. He says, I am the witness, faithful and true. If you want to see what a faithful witness looks like, you look at Jesus' life, the way he lived and the way he blessed others, the sacrifice that he made, the cross that he hung on so that we might have life, and the fact that he rose again. That is witness, faithful and true. I think it's important, and these things that Jesus, the way he described himself, I think they fit the situation in Laodicea. They speak to some of the things that they they are struggling with. And the last thing he says, he says, I am the archae or the ruler or the first or the source of God's creation. I think he means not only the creation that we live in now, but the creation that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. So Jesus says all of this, just as he's introducing himself, the one who writes this, the one who speaks to you, is this Jesus. This Jesus who is... Uh, the The witness, faithful and true, the Amen God, and the ruler of creation, so Jesus, this is how he describes himself, and then he begins speaking to the Church in Laodicea, and he says, "I have this actually, I know your works that you think that you are um, hot are hot and cold, but i I wish that you were one or the other, and it 's interesting, I think about um, the issues that were facing Laodicea, one was their broken witness, and two was their, their arrogance, their pride, and their self-reliance. Let's begin with their broken witness. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says um, that you are neither hot nor cold, but you are lukewarm. I think he's getting at their broken witness, the the fact that their testimony to the world around them is broken. It's undermined by the way that they're living. And I say that because, you know, and I think um, for many years, for many centuries actually, people have received or heard that, you. I wish you were hot or cold, and interpreted that as spiritually. I wish that you were really hot, really faithful, or that you were really cold. Like, I wish you were either an atheist or a faithful Christian. And I, I don't think that's quite right. Because as I look through Scripture, nowhere else does Jesus say, I wish you were either an atheist or, or faithful. I think he always says, I wish you were faithful. But I think he says, he's speaking to this Laodicean church where they are kind of living in the middle, trying to walk both sides of the line. How can I, you know, be comfortable and fit in and, you know, kind of look like everybody else? And how can I, what's the minimum or the, the, the necessary things I need to do to follow Jesus? And so when Jesus says, um, I wish that you were hot or cold, I actually think he's talking to the water situation in Laodicea. In Hierapolis to the north, they had piping hot um, hot springs that were therapeutic. If people wanted to go, they were useful. And then in Colossae to the east, they had ice cold, refreshing water for people who were traveling. It was useful. This lukewarm water that tasted bad was useless. And I think I, I hear Jesus saying, I want you to be either really hot, and therapeutic, or I want you to be ice cold and refreshing, but I don't want you to be in the middle and useless. I want fruit to come out of your church. So they had this broken witness. The way they were living wasn't impressing anyone. It wasn't challenging any of their neighbors to think, you know, maybe there's something to following Jesus. Maybe there's something that I need to look into, because what I'm doing isn't working. There was nothing in their witness that was challenging or comforting to people. And I think the underlying problem to their broken witness was their wealth. <clears throat> it was, it was, that's the kind of the presenting issue was their witness was broken, but the underlying cause was their wealth. And they, we know that because Jesus says, He's quoting them, they say that I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I don't need anything. And the, the acquired wealth part, I was trying to, I, I think it's, I think it's helpful to translate it as, I I have made myself wealthy. I earned this. I'm a self-made person. Nobody did this for me. I worked for it and I made myself wealthy. So no, I don't need anything from you. The trouble is, in the ancient world, especially these cities um, that, that John is writing to in Asia Minor, to be wealthy usually meant you had to participate in the business culture of the day, which meant you had to probably be a part of a trade guild. The trade guilds, as we've talked about the last few weeks, were basically like trade unions. There was a way of controlling the system so nobody could just walk in and set up shop and take over. But part of the trade guild was also was worshipping a patron god. So, for example, in Laodicea, you would have a trade guild probably for the black wool that they were famous for. Well, they had a patron god of that black wool. So they would have dinners as a way to bring everybody together to talk about business and policies and who's doing what and how they're going to regulate. But also part of it was honoring the patron God. You can imagine the trouble for a Christian. So Christians in other cities stopped going. I wonder if that's what was happening in Smyrna because they refused to be a part of the trade guilds, refused to worship other gods, that they were ostracized and their business suffered for it. And they were poor. But in Laodicea, it doesn't seem to be the issue. They seem to be doing really well. In the ancient world, to do well, and actually in these cities, you had to be a part of the trade guilds, and that meant compromise. But I also hear them saying, because of their wealth, because they had done it on their, on their own, I wonder if they were starting to think that they didn't really need Jesus, that they didn't need his grace, or his hope, or his life. They started thinking, you know, we don't need anything. We kind of provide what we need on our own. If I need something, I just go buy it. I don't pray about it. How often does that happen in the world around us, right? I think about many of our friends and neighbors who find out that I'm a Christian or when I ask them or I talk with them about faith or needing grace, they're just not interested. Are you kidding me? If I need something, I go buy it. I don't pray about it. Why would I do that? I made this money. I worked hard. (laughs) This brain that I was born with, yeah, I earned that. (laughs) The advantages my parents gave me, yeah, I earned that. The fact that I could go to university and not have any bills afterward because of my parents, because of the schools they sent me to as a kid, yeah, that was my doing. I earned that. We totally take it for granted. The culture around us Wealth makes us totally take Jesus for granted. And I wonder if that was beginning to seep in to the church in Laodicea. Because they were doing so well, at least financially. If that began to seep in. I wonder if it began to seep into their lives. And then Jesus says this to them. He says, you think that you are wealthy You are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Can you imagine that? Saying that to a church that thought they were rich and had it figured out and they were known for their clothes and they were known for their medical, for their eye um, treatments. To a city that was famous for being a banking center of that region, Jesus says, you are poor, you are wretched. To a city that probably esteemed themselves pretty high, probably thought a lot about themselves, Jesus says that you are to be pitied above all others. To a city that thought, you know, we've, we're have we pretty famous for this this black wool that we have, black wool, Jesus says, let me give you white garments because you're naked. You should be ashamed of yourselves. How naked you are! To a city that is famous for its its eye uh, cream, says you're blind. You don't see the things of God. You're looking at this world and at Jesus like you're looking at your life the way the world has taught you, not the way that Jesus has taught you. You're famous for eye for eye creams, but you don't see. It's pretty amazing that how Jesus approaches this church. And then I hear him say this amazing thing, to return to them with grace, to not just leave them there in condemnation, but it comes, and he says, I counsel you to buy from me pure gold and a white robe to cover your nakedness and eye salve for your eyes. And it's always, it caught me this week as I was reading, he says, I counsel you. <laughs> Can you imagine that? The Lord God, Jesus, the Amen, the witness who is faithful and true, the Arche, the ruler over all of God's creation said, Can I give you some advice? I think Jesus is being speaking a little tongue-in-cheek here. Let me give you some advice. Buy from me. And I just had this image of Jesus heaping hot coals, which is a Hebrew way of saying humbling people. Of bringing them down a few pegs. Buy from me this gold that's been purified by fire. That's pure and it's, and then I will make you rich. And I hear Jesus saying, uh, follow me faithfully, even when it costs you, even when you're persecuted, and that will refine you, and then you will be rich. Like the, like the, the church in Smyrna, the Christians there, they are rich because they're not compromising. And he says, buy from me white robes. Not those dirty black things that you're famous for making, but white robes of faithfulness, of righteousness, that come only by following Jesus. And an eye salve that will give you eyes to see, that will, that will cure and make you uh, see again because you're blind. Here hear Jesus speaking to them words of grace to a church that thinks that they don't need him. But it gets even better than that. <laughs> Jesus speaks to them with amazing Grace. He says, um, come to me. And I want you to, to, um, to know that I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to rebuke you and discipline you. You know, we live in a time where we don't take rebuke very well. The culture around us, and even we get caught up in it, we don't take rebuke very well. Who are you to rebuke me? Who are you to challenge me? It's pride in us. God, forgive us. But it's interesting in Scripture, this right here, Jesus saying, I rebuke those who I love. And I started thinking about my own sons. Man, they do some stupid stuff. <laughs> they do some crazy things, sometimes disrespectful things, things that are, that are wrong for them to do. And if I were to let them do them, to get away with it, they'd grow up to be horrible men. And so I do I rebuke them, and I discipline them because I love them, because of the men that I want them to grow up to be and I think it's it's important for us to hear that that rebuke from Jesus conviction from him is the beginning of grace it's not doesn't It's not just condemnation for our, for those of us who believe in him, it's the beginning of grace, it's the words that lead us to repentance. And I know repentance is an ugly word these days. Asking God for forgiveness, acknowledging our sinfulness and our brokenness. I know the world around us hates that sort of stuff. But it is central to who we are as followers of Jesus. Repentance. It's so important. And that's why one of the reasons why I love the season of Lent leading up to Easter. Because it's a season marked by repentance. That's why I, for the last few weeks as I pray, as we pray together as a church, I pray only confession. Lord, forgive us. It's so, I, I don't know, maybe it's the plan of Satan to change our culture where people hate to say, I'm sorry, because that's the one thing that begins our road back to Jesus, our road back to God. So here Jesus saying, um, I love you, so I rebuke you. So, and he starts telling them what to do. So be zealous. Be hot like a hot spring so people are soothed by you. Or be ice cold and refreshing for people who are traveling that you can be a refreshment to them. Just please do not be lukewarm in the middle, useful for nothing. Now I hear him say, repent. And in the Greek, that's the idea of heading one way and turning around and going back the other. Turn away from your idea that your wealth is your God. Turn away from the idea that you can do it all yourselves. Turn away from that and return to Jesus. Return to him, to our Father in heaven, to the Holy Spirit who is with us. I hear Jesus speaking these things to this church. And the amazing thing is he says, for behold, which is kind of a key word in Revelation, check it out. I stand at the door and knock. And that is amazing to me, that despite this, this city who thought they didn't need Jesus, this church who thought that they had all figured out that they could pay their own way, Jesus is at the door knocking, right there with them. I mean, it's kind of um, convicting at the same time. Jesus is on the outside of this church, which is never a good place to be for a church. But he's still right there with them. And he says, if you just open the door, I will come in. No, like, here's ten, here's a hundred things you have to do before I'll even consider it. Nothing. He says, you open the door and I'll come in. And I will eat with you and you will eat with me. Now, I know, like, we kind of, we totally live in a different culture, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, to eat with somebody was to draw them into relationship, to draw them into family. And we still catch glimpses of it when we eat together, when we share our meals together. That's why it's so important for us to do that—not only with each other at the church, but also people in our community. It's no surprise, or it's, I think there's something God has worked into eating a meal together that begins to hold us together. We share things. So Jesus is saying, if you open the door, I will come in and be with you, and you will be with me. We will be reconciled again. And He says, and to those who overcome, I will give you a place on My throne. You will rule with Me just as Jesus overcame on the cross and then his resurrection and rules on his father's throne. It's powerful stuff. It's amazing God's grace, despite how far the Laodicean church had gone, the idea that wealth was going to get them through, that they didn't need anything from anybody. Jesus is still gracious towards them. He loves them and so he rebukes them, but then he says, but when you open the door, I will come right in and we will eat together. This is good news for us. This is powerful thing. This is amazing grace of Jesus. Amen.